Se, La Through 60's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and today we have a special episode of the show. We're joined by fellows from historically black colleges and universities who took part in a LexisNexis fellowship aimed at eliminating systemic racism in the legal system. That's a big problem to tackle. What steps can really make an impact to improve equality throughout the legal system? Here to tell us are some of the fellows themselves who've worked on innovative projects and are looking to do just that. I'm joined by three fellows today, Shayla McIntyre. Hi, Shayla. Um, You're from Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University College of Law. It's nice to have you. Thank you for having me. We're also joined today by Ebony Cormier. Hi. Did I get your name right, Ebony? You did. Oh, yay. (laughs) Um, Ebony, I know you're from Southern University Law School. Yes. And our third fellow today is Jamal Bailey. Hey, Jamal, you're from D.C. I spent a lot of years down in D.C. myself. (laughs) You're from the University of the District of Columbia, David A. Clark School of Law. It's nice to have you. Real prestigious, right? (laughs) I feel like everybody from D.C. will get each other in this conversation. Of course, of course. Um, Well, welcome to everybody. I really wanted to sort of kick off this conversation, um, digging into the overall fellowship first before we talk about your projects, just to set up our listeners so they know what has been going on with you guys for the last nine months or so. Lexus launched this from the African Ancestry Network and the Lexus Rule of Law Foundation. They partnered with the Historically Black Colleges and Universities Law School Consortium. And in all, there are 12 fellows. So you guys are just the representative group for us today. I'd like to hear from each of you about what made you want to be a part of this group and a part of the fellowship. Sure. So I'll start. Um, It was just an amazing opportunity to be able to be a part of something like the LexisNexis Fellowship um, that encompassed all six of the HBCU law schools um, that we have in this country. And so to be a part of that inaugural cohort um, is something that um, I wanted to do. Um, In addition to the the funds, the scholarship funds that we receive um, and the opportunities um, that they laid out before us and that they continue to lay out. So it's just, it's, it was an amazing um, opportunity and I leapt at it. Ebony, I'm glad that you were excited about it. Maybe Shayla and Jamal, you can talk about, I mean, being a law student's pretty busy. So to take on an additional task of working on a project as part of a fellowship, it's kind of a big ask, guys. Um, why do you guys want to do it? What made me get involved was um, I remember the first essay prompt access to identify um, systemic racism within the legal industry. And being a minority, either you've been affected or you know someone who has. So not only can you talk about it from almost any aspect, but now we get to put our work in motion and really help. No, I agree. And I mean, I definitely concur with the sentiments. It was a tall order, very tall order. <laughs> sure. I mean, most of us are third years, you know, looking towards graduation. And it was just one of those moments where, at least, you know, speaking for myself, where like I had to jump into this. You, you don't get too many organizations as big as LexisNexis, you know, that like really focuses on data analytics and our essential legal research software. You just don't get a company like that really interested in getting in, rolling up their sleeves and engaging. And, you know, I'm pretty sure I, uh, I speak for everyone. We have these conversations all the time. Like this was around the profession now, like, oh, big law recruits here and nowhere else. Like, oh. Uh, the prestigious uh, jobs and everything that we've read so much about are only looking at X amount of people. And to have a platform, to have a voice to like really articulate, communicate my thoughts and then back it with data, it, it was just, you know, one of those things you couldn't pass up. Well, let's not um, 
be too excited about just Lexus because we need you guys too. I mean, Lexus does have all that data and a lot of power behind it, but without people that are willing to take the task on and tell us where to point that data and that power, um, nothing really happens. So it's really a great synergy to bring us all together. Um, Before we get into your actual stories about what in particular you've been working on, let's take a quick break. So now I want to talk about the specific projects you guys have worked on. It's a great representation of the overall fellowship and and your your cohorts that also had their own individual projects. Let's start with you, Shayla. I know you put together something um, that would create something called the outlet, which is basically a safe space for minority attorneys to voice concerns for firms and bar associations to really receive that feedback and to help drive inclusion, hopefully. Tell me more about how that would work. So when attorneys um, are having issues at their firm, they can go to the safe space to um, have an outlet and say, okay, what's happening in their firm? So there are certain issues like maybe racial issues that minorities face, and they may may not feel comfortable going to HR and saying, you know, hey, I'm having this issue because then what happens? Is it um, they speak with the person who's causing this issue, and then are they going to experience retaliation possibly? Not saying that will happen, but if we can take the safe space out of the firm and putting it in a local bar association that's backed and credible, we can have a place where they can speak candidly and possibly seek solutions. Yeah, and just to be clear, we're not talking about stuff that it would be you know, discriminatory actions that you would definitely take to HR. We're talking about things that are more sort of soft, right, like on the margins that you want addressed. But it's not the kind of stuff that you're going to immediately say, someone's not staffing me on this matter because I'm a black person. It's it's the things that are more around the edges, right? Right. So it's not things that are just clearly issues that are just absurd and shouldn't be happening. Right. Nothing like that at all. More so like microaggressions or things that if they weren't happening, you would have a much better experience at your firm. But not anything that um, seriously impairs your ability to work. And that seems to be the toughest type of issue for a firm to address. I mean, like you said, there may be reluctance on the part of the people experiencing that to report it to anybody, and then firms may not know what to do with it, even if they did hear about it. So tell me more about how this would sort of help aggregate that kind of information and and how firms could then act on it. Right. So I'm proposing that we have the safe space and, you know, we collect the data as people begin to share what issues they may be facing, and see if there is a trend. And if this is something that we can say, hey, this is actually occurring a lot and we need to provide a solution. But we can't provide a solution if we don't know what the issues that they're facing are. We would just be shooting in the dark if we just say, oh, let's address the racism. But okay, what, what specifically? Right. Yeah. I know you also had proposed a pledge that firms could um, take a public stand and say they would be part of this program. Why do you think that's important? So my goal with the pledge is for it to be a public pledge where attorneys, new attorneys, or even attorneys who just want a new home, they can kind of see where this firm stands on diversity and minority inclusion. And so they can, um, attorneys can see at the outset, oh, they support my values. I will be welcomed here. I should go join there. And hopefully making it public will show that the firms 
want to be held out as being inclusive and not just something that they keep to themselves. But we can see, oh, they're a part of it. Maybe I'll feel at home there. This sounds like a really interesting idea. Um, Happy to have had you explain that. Thanks a lot for that. No problem. So now I want to turn to Jamal. You are tackling sort of a different uh, part of the legal system. We just talked with Shayla about when someone's already in a firm, but you're going way back to the beginning. Um, I know your project is about law school admissions. So tell us what you see as the big barrier to opportunities for black students who are looking to go to law school. See, that's a very... <laughs> Boil it down for you, Jamal. Look, look, we can go all the way to the beginning, you know, in elementary school. But I think uh, particularly responding to our prompt of, you know, where does systemic racism in a legal profession begin? It begins at the law school admissions process. Yeah. It begins at kind of this, this standard when it was established of like LSAT plus undergrad GPA equals candidacy profile for admins in the school and then we layer it we take that admins into you know our top 14 or whatever schools and if you don't make top 14 you figure out where you go after that and then each step along the way kind of like pushes you further and further into this entitlement for some but also you know this relegation of like this is all you can be in the profession for others you know and it's, it's insane that it starts like we're taking people who are 20, 21 years old, having to like lay it all on the line to determine who you can be in this profession. So I firmly believe it starts with the admissions process. I mean, I remember during my 1L year, I got a study group because I was panicked. So as you do, you gather other panicked people to panic together. <laughs> um, and at some point we did that thing that I think a lot of people in law school do where they're like, what was your LSAT score? What was your GPA? We were all within like a point of each other. Exactly. So it really does narrow that that seems like such the criteria and not a lot else matters. Um, Do you have any sense of how big a problem this is for black students in particular? Um, Any kind of, you know, you don't have to give too many stats, but just what have you seen as you've dug into the issue? I don't even have the vocabulary to describe how big a problem this actually is in practice, you know? So, like, if we walk it back, you know, on its face, everyone has an undergrad GPA. Everybody takes the LSAT to, you know, get into law school. That's on its face, right? It's supposed to be a fair thing. But if you really look at it, and we could look at, like, our median averages, you know, per demographic. I believe, last I checked, you know, for black Americans, we were at 142, median LSAT score. Black men specifically, 138. And I think, you know, a little bit above that uh, Latinx folks, we have like 144 to 145. You know, so what are, what are numbers without a benchmark? If you look at the past five years or so, uh, the ABA being the accrediting body, yep, there's been notice of uh, out of compliance filed on almost all of our HBCU law schools, where guess what? The median LSAT score, you know, or, you know, they put they put the language around it, you know, failure to meet interpretation, whatever, uh, uh, entering class credentials and stuff like that. But if you like look at it and you go beyond the numbers, if we have an HBCU law school where the median average of that demographic is X amount, the law school's median is maybe like 145, 146, 147, then boom, out of compliance from the accrediting body. Because we're not sure that you are capable of passing the bar exam. You know, it's literally 
uh, right, so it's like baked in right from the beginning. It's putting a complete stranglehold on an entire demographics, like opportunity to even get in, you know, by shackling these institutions of, hey, if you don't raise your standard by X amount of numbers, then we're going to take your accreditation. Okay, so that definitely seems like a problem. What have you proposed that schools look at instead of this very, you know, straightforward LSAT plus GPA metric? Wow, so that's pretty layered. I'm going to try to, like, talk it through as it makes sense in my head, and I hope it uh, translates. Um, So I'm not – so I'll say up front for the record, I'm not saying we should abandon the LSAT and that methodology. Well, thank God, because people would really miss those logic games. Right. (laughs) I think that's a uh, that's a convenient solution, but I think it's shorthand. It doesn't really address the real issues. I think that, you know, when you're considering candidacy, you need to look at the person as a whole, you know, and like what is what is holistic admissions mean, you know, maybe writing an uh, essay, you know what I mean, to like yeah. explain, you know, your service record, a uh, letter of recommendation from different people in specific criteria, like, all right, somebody speaking on uh, behalf of Jamal's service. Somebody speaking on uh, behalf of Jamal as a student. Somebody speaking on uh, behalf of Jamal as a leader. Completely separation. But also, I would say we see this all the time in the business world. You know, ESG standards. Sure. You know, like like force on the accreditation side, like the accrediting body of like, all right, how is your law school contributing to, you know, social responsibility in your locale and the legal profession? How are they contributing to diversity? And, you know what I mean? And, like, start putting these metrics on it so that people have to respond to it. And I think, like, another one that we came up with, make law schools, like, un- like write down and enumerate their mission. You know, for example, UDC, David A. Clark School of Law, is to provide access to those traditionally underrepresented at the bar. Sure. That's our mission. So guess who we attract? Those who are typically underrepresented at the bar. So we force, you know, our law schools from, you know, backing away from the general scholar, uplifting the rule of law or whatever, backing away from that and say specifically, okay, if you come here, we are pledging to fight the environment. You know, like we're pledging to, you know, bring back uh, green standards. We're pledging to fight, you know, like like emissions and stuff like that. You'll attract a certain demographic if you say we're here to, you know, fight civil rights. You'll attract a different demographic. If it takes us out of this rat race, for lack of better words, of everybody rushing to the exact same places, and for those of us who don't make it to those places, then this is the pecking order as sure. described by your uh, so your point total. That is um, really interesting to hear because law school admissions officers do tend to have a little bit of a math brain, right? They just want to look at that GPA, that LSAT. But those are things that seem like you could really demonstrate how to rank people even within a new rubric. So um, really, really gives a lot of food for thought on that. So last but not least, I want to turn to you, Ebony. And your project is a little bit different than the first two we talked about because it's not actually about the lawyers. It's about a bigger problem in the legal world. And that's the issue of people, primarily black people, who've been jailed for low-level offenses and remain in jail just because they can't afford bail, which 
I've heard about this problem many times. We've written about it a lot at Law360, but it shocks me every time I think about it that you could stay in jail only because you can't make bail. Yes. So yes. tell me about the scope of this problem. Yeah, so, and thanks again for for having me um, here. So the problem is there are approximately 1.6 million people in jail. Two-thirds of those people are in there and haven't been convicted of a crime. That means they're sitting in jail pre-trial, right. never convicted of a crime. Some of them are supposed to be there, right? Because, you know, whatever they're accused of, it's egregious and or they have a criminal history. Those people can stay. But two-thirds, that's a large number, right? Of those two-thirds, 600,000 people, 43% are Black. That Those numbers, they don't make sense. Black people represent 13% of the U.S. population. Right. It's very disproportionate when you take that into account. Yes. And what kind of numbers are we talking about for bail? Because I think, you know, if you're a casual court watcher and all you your context is is like law and order or something, you're thinking, oh, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. But we're not talking about anything close to that, right? No, not at all. The average person, and this is black, white, and different, cannot afford more than $500 in bail. Actually, the number is 15%. Only 15% of people can pay bail beyond $500. That's shocking. I'd never heard that statistic before. But you can well imagine that most people will not be able to afford their bail. Right. If, you know, because it's, it's going to be very rare that it's under $500. Anything over that just tips the scale. Yes. So let's talk about some of the real consequences of this cash bail system. I know that you had a story um, that really moved you about someone named Khalif Browder. Can you tell me about him? Yes. And Khalif is actually um, a Bronx, New York native. And so he was 16 years old, and he was accused of stealing a backpack with a camera and $700 inside. And he was arrested, and his bail was set at $3,000. Well, he couldn't pay it, and his family couldn't pay it. So Khalif had to sit in jail, Rikers Island, one of the most dangerous jails in the country. He had to sit in jail for over 1,000 days. Wow. Because he could not afford to pay And in those days, he spent two years in solitary confinement because of the issues that he had with other inmates and the guards. He was brutalized, so to speak, at the hands of people within the jail. And so for his protection, they put him in solitary confinement. Ultimately, Khalif was released. He was never charged with anything. He actually went on to get his GED. He went to community college. But the mental anguish and that experience of him being on Rikers Island for over three years, over a thousand days, it forced him to take his own life. He could never really recover from the damage that had been done. And so, you know, the the problem with the cash bail system There just needs to be a a different way to go about determining who should stay in jail and who shouldn't. And it shouldn't be based on socioeconomic status or race. Yeah, I mean, that's a really sobering example. But I would imagine there are thousands and thousands of people that maybe it hasn't impacted them to the point that they take their own life. But it can take years away from their lives while they're waiting in jail, unable to pay. 
What's the solution here? What are you proposing that could at least help? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, the Equality Bail Fund is what I'm proposing. And it's uh, essentially, there are several bail funds out here in the country. Um, but the Equality Bail Fund is different because my focus is on corporations and law firms to give. A lot of community bail funds, they get money from the community. But I want to focus on corporations who made statements during George Floyd and said they have a commitment to social responsibility. Well, this is social responsibility as well. And so corporations, law firm, nonprofit organizations, I want them to give. And so I want to be able to build up this fund. And this could be a fund that funds other funds. Sure. Also. Um, and in that, um, you know, we're, there's going to be a vetting process. We Everybody, like I said, it's not a get out of jail free situation. Yeah. Tell me more about that, because I think if you're, you know, sitting in a position in a corporation and you think on the face of this sound this sounds compelling but you might worry will my company donate to this bail fund and get somebody released and then they do something terrible so how would you vet that how would you keep this contained essentially sure so the goal is to have criteria um it has to be we're going to start out with low level um offenses, misdemeanors, yep. right? And then um, we'll look at criminal history. We'll look at, um, you know, um, age. We'll look at uh, whether you're uh, a parent. Um, all these factors that if you're sitting in jail, you can't be a parent to your children. Right. If you're young and 16 years old, like Khalif was, you can't continue to go to school. Um, and so we'll have um, these steps in place and these processes processes in place so that um, we can kind of vet out those people that need to sit in jail and help those um, that need our help. That sounds great. Thanks so much for explaining that. You're welcome. Guys, for all of you, um, it's such interesting and good ideas that can sort of attack the problem of inequality in the law from a lot of different angles. You've spent, you know, the last nine months or so working on these projects, working with folks in Lexus. What have you learned along the way? What did you um, discover as part of this process? I know you were passionate in the beginning when you first signed up, but it's been nine months of really focusing on it. So what surprised you about it? I think for me, um, when they initially asked, going back to that, you know, are there any issues in the legal um, field? I took it literally, you know, for an attorney. But then hearing the other projects, you have, you know, the cash bail, you have, you know, law school admissions. And you knew it was a big problem being in America, but how big? I don't know if I really understood the magnitude of it. So that's the impact it's had on me so far. I think um, what surprised me, you know, kind of unpleasantly is the resistance to acknowledge like what, you know, this process has done and continues to do to people. But because it kind of perpetuates, you know, the spirit of elitism, that runs rampant in the legal profession, then people are really apprehensive from, you know, even like hearing the ideas out. I think, you know, like having these conversations with people and saying, hey, these are the numbers, you know, this is what the accrediting body has done. This is who it's affecting. And then we was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Then we sit back from, you know, floor 50 in these bright, shiny buildings of saying, hey, diversity, you know, we need to uh, increase our numbers uh, post George Floyd. We pledge to increase our numbers, but you're you're pledging to increase your numbers from the exact same resource pool. Sure. 
you know, you're not acknowledging that the the entire talent pipeline is being cut at its absolute beginning. How many people, you know, I mean, I'm I, I know countless people that have been denied opportunity, you know, due to the LSAT, due to like not performing the absolute best in undergrad, but going on and getting like a master's degree, being top of their class. Oh yeah, we don't consider that. You know what I mean? So I think this the the overall apprehension. You know, and even the challenge a lot of times. I mean, fortunately, I got a pretty big personality, so like I don't, <laughs> I don't scare easily. But it's like, okay, well, if if the LSAT isn't working, then what do you propose? And it's like, you know, even that question by itself, you know, and this might be a little edgy for your podcast, but I have a quote that I think about all the time when I'm doing my advocacy. You can't dismantle the master's house by using the master's tools. You know what I mean? So like every every data point or like every argument. There's a rebuttal because this isn't a new problem. You know, the ELSA has been around since 1947, and it's been analysis, scholarship, documentation about it since 1947 of this is flawed. Doesn't correlate to success in the legal profession. Doesn't correlate, maybe correlates a little bit, you know, your first year, but after that, it doesn't. The complete apprehension because it's honestly protecting a system that puts people where, hey, you scored X. So you get to be here making this amount, you score Y, so you get to go figure it out. Right. What about you, Emily? Any surprises, anything you learned that you weren't expecting? Yes. So I knew the issue with cash bail was an issue, um, but I didn't realize how big. And reaching out and trying to get people on board with my mission um, was a challenge. Um, And I use LinkedIn a lot. Um, and so it was strange, some of the comments, like, I can't believe LexisNexis would be affiliated with anything like this. It's like, we're simply trying to address a problem in America that disproportionately affects blacks and minorities. Why wouldn't LexisNexis and any other corporation law firm be on board? And so just overcoming that type of mentality, um, has been a challenge. Um, But overall, I think the exposure, like Shayla said, the exposure to different areas um, where uh, we need to address systemic racism in the legal field, being exposed to that and having an awareness now, I can see it and I I have children. And so I can help them navigate even better because I have been given this knowledge that these other members of my cohort have worked on. Well, I can say um, we're very happy to be associated with this project at LexisNexis and at Law360. It's really um, very eye-opening to hear about your projects. I hope as you guys proceed in your legal careers, you can take some of this with you and, and push it even further. Thanks, guys, so much for being on today to explain everything to me. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you for you. having us. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our special guests this week, Shayla McIntyre, Emily Cormier, and Jamal Bailey. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to learn more about the Lexus Fellowship, we'll have a link with details in our show notes. So head over to our law360.com slash podcast page. Thanks and see you back here next week.